But we are in a series called Sifted, and then the first week we looked at uh, the fact that we should expect sifting. Jesus experienced it, and Jesus promised it. And then last week we learned that not only should we expect sifting, but we learned the purpose of sifting was to separate the useful from the useless. And this week we look at the process of sifting, something I have affectionately called butt removal. So it was right after I graduated from high school that I got this amazing job working for this engineering firm. And that was awesome because I was going to be an engineer. So my title was surveyor's assistant. And that's okay because uh, surveyors work really closely with engineers. We got a picture of them here. And they make sure they're, like I said, they work closely with those engineers. They make sure that things go as they should. And so I was very excited. Surveyor's assistant. And then I learned keyword assistant, uh, which basically meant I did whatever the surveyor wanted. And I didn't get to be on the road. I got to be in a field. I got to be in swamps. I got to be in marshes because we lived in a farming community where those farmers just wanted to make really sure that their, their, uh, their fields didn't flood. And so I'm out there with that silly pole and I'm in hip waders, and it's brown water, and it's smelly water, and it seeps in over the top, and I ruin my socks. It's bad. It's bad. It's not fun. However, there were some great days. These days were called street days. Now, street days were when the surveyors and the engineers and the project managers, where they had to stay in town and stand around, I mean, inspect, where they had to inspect the road that was going in to make sure that it was being done correctly. So I thought this would be a great day too, that I wouldn't have to wear hip waders that were going to get full of swamp water and stuff like that, that I would get to inspect the road. But I didn't. Instead, I got to do a fun process called gravel sifting. Now, uh, gravel sifting is you got to make sure the road's done correctly, okay? But uh, gravel sifting is where you actually test to make sure the road's done correctly. And this is really important. I mean, civil engineers might seem like they have a boring job, roads, bridges, you know, streets, uh, buildings, but very important because if the road doesn't work, it can wash out and it can be really, really dangerous. So, so my boss told me gravel sifting is really important. Well, what gravel sifting is, is taking a five-gallon bucket of sand, rock, and gravel that you pick up from the road as the road crew's going by, so you want to make sure you don't get hit by the semi, and then you carry it back to the office, and then you pour it in a machine that looks like this, and oftentimes the gravel's wet, so after you pour it in and and seal it up and then turn the machine on and wait, and wait wait some more. Generally, it takes 30 to 40 minutes to shake, and then you pour it out, and then you measure, but you can't measure yet because some of the gravel might be wet, so you've got to cook the gravel to make sure all of it can part up, and then shake it again, and then pour it, and then measure it, and then weigh it to make sure you have the right percentage of rock and class 5 and bituminous and, and gravel and sand. Otherwise, the road doesn't work, and if you get it, if we find out that the road company did it incorrectly because this process would take like two hours 
And so oftentimes my boss, especially as I was learning how to do this, my boss would come in with the next bucket and say, how'd it go? Oh, well, it looks like it's not right. Oh, do it again. Because if we're going to make sure you did it right, because if we're going to go accuse the road company of doing it wrong, I don't want some 19-year-old messing it up. Okay. Uh, And so this is what I had to do. I had to shake it and pour it and shake it and sift it and heat it and shake it and measure it and and go, okay, this is the percent, this is the percent, this is the percent. And that process of gravel sifting, although very boring, very arduous, is really important because those roads have to last. You know, in Minnesota, just like, in 2009 alone, we spent over $4 billion in road maintenance. I mean, let's... that Anyway, it's bad. But the process of gravel sifting is actually very similar to the process of spiritual sifting, where God takes us and lovingly shakes us and heats us up and pours us out and measures us and shakes us up, and heats us up, and pours us out, and measures us to see the useful from the useless. And this process is sometimes arduous. And we see this process oftentimes in our relationships, and in our closest relationships. And so maybe a good place to start this talk would be just asking the question, if you've ever lost a friend. Has anyone ever lost a friend? Okay, most of us have lost a friend. My first friend, Johnny Meese, seven years old, and my parents tell me uh, one night that Johnny's moving the next day. What? How? I don't understand. What? Where's he going? Well, his dad got a new job. So he's leaving in the morning, 10 o'clock, and I raced my little banana seat Apache bicycle over there and barely got to say goodbye to him which was really nothing compared to the second time I lost a friend, and that was uh, in fourth grade. And my best friend and I had gotten into an argument, and the next day I came to the 12-person rectangular lunch table with those little orange plastic saucer seats. There's two seats left. I go to sit down. He's right across from me. He goes, whoa, you can't sit here. We're not friends with you anymore. Now I'm 10, I, I, I don't really have an understanding of what I can do in this situation or if he has any right to tell me that those people aren't my friends, but at that moment I was just stunned. At that moment I felt completely alone. And at that moment I just wanted to crawl under any table and hide. And I looked around to see if there were any other friends that I might have that had open spots at their table and I couldn't find any and then I saw an empty table and I ran to that empty table and I sat down and I kind of covered my head and I ate my food completely alone. And it was a tough day for me. But, but I think when we become adults, oftentimes we just kind of brush aside when we lose friends and we say things like, oh, you know, we just, we just grew apart. You know, life got busy. And we don't stop, and we don't take time to, to ask ourselves, to ask God, maybe even to ask the other person what happened or what's going on. And, and sometimes it's, it's worse than that. Sometimes we lose friends. I know some of you in this room have lost friends because you've said yes to Jesus. And life got hard, 
and they were doing things that maybe you decided you didn't want to do, or maybe things that you decided that, that God wasn't calling you to. And so when you said yes to Jesus, that meant your friends left. And even though they're not the healthiest friends, you're alone, or you feel alone. And even though they weren't the healthiest friends, you missed the support. You missed someone being around. And you sort of feel like you don't have any support. But for some, it's a loss of a romantic relationship. You're dating someone, you're close to someone, you've given part of your heart away, and they said, oh, I just need some space. Or, one of my favorite lines, um, it's not you, it's me. Um, but I, I think even harder is when you hear, you know, I found somebody else. And so this person you've given your heart to, like, walks away with part of it. And now you're in this moment where you feel like you've, you've given something that, that can't really be given back. And then there's times that are even harder than that, where you're at or going through or have been through a divorce. And, and while I think that God allows for divorce, especially in certain certain situations, it completely breaks his heart. And now you're in a moment where, where you feel like something that was supposed to last forever didn't. And the people that I've talked to about divorce and the, and the young people that I've talked to about their parents' divorce, they, they leave with this huge repair work needed to be done in their heart. Because someone that was supposed to be there walked away. Someone that's supposed to say, I love you, left. Someone that was supposed to say, I'll always be there, betrayed. And so there's this utter aloneness. And in those moments of aloneness in these relationships, I think some of us wonder, like, if that's bad luck? Or is it evil? Or is it some kind of evil power? Or is it my own mistakes? Or might it be part of this sifting process that God brings us through? And that's a giant question. Uh, One that I don't think we really could answer honestly in our time together. But I think what we can answer is what God desires for us in the process of sifting. And specifically in this area of relationships, we can see how God brings us through a sifting process by looking at two people in the Bible, Abraham and Sarah. And if we enter their story, I think we can learn what God desires for us in this idea and in this story. So if you have a Bible, you'll want to turn to Genesis chapter 12. It's, it's going to be on the screen, but maybe you want to take your own notes. And let's enter this story as if we're right next to Abraham and Sarah and see where God is taking them. Genesis 12 says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, leave your relatives, and leave your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who treat you with contempt all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. Now, these verses, God is making some huge, some precious promises to Abraham, uh, or the man who would become Abraham. And these are not just like the most important 
verses in the book of Genesis. I really think that these are some of the most important verses in all of the Old Testament. And they mark the beginning of God's redemption movement. What I like to call restoration for other reasons. But he starts this restoration process of calling people back into relationship with himself. But it's also when he starts the sifting process for Abraham and for Sarah. Because Abraham and Sarah had to leave. They had to leave what they knew. They had to leave their friends. They had to leave their land. They had to leave their relatives. And they had to go to an unknown place. They had to walk out of their comfort zone. And in that, they had to learn a new dependence. And the sifting starts. But, but at least they get to go together, right? I mean, isn't that what oftentimes we say? That's how I got my wife. I'm like, oh, we could go on this great adventure with God. Don't you want to do that? Wouldn't that be fun? No, don't trust in security because I'm not going to be an engineer. I'm going to be a pastor and make, yeah, so let's go on this adventure. Let's trust. And, okay. So in a moment of weakness, she said yes. And, and maybe you did too. And it's like, oh, we're all going to be okay as long as there's someone that's there with me. Except that's not actually what happened. They didn't say, yes, God, will go. They said, yes, God, but. Turn to, turn to verse 10. See if you see what I mean. There was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there, while, live there for a while because the famine was so severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you're my sister. Then they will treat me well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Yes, but. Yes, God, I know you're going to take us through this land. I know you're bringing us into this land, but there's a famine. So we're going to go to Egypt. Remember, Egypt is always bad. If you want a code for the Bible, Egypt, bad. Okay? Not good. Yes, Sarai, I know you're a righteous babe at 65 years young, but when they see you, they will kill me. I love you, but tell them you're my sister. Now, have you ever thought about what Sarai's response would have been? Here's what I imagined as I thought about it this week. Uh, excuse me. Did you seriously just say that? Do you seriously not love me enough? Do you seriously, are you seriously not man enough to put my needs before your needs? Like, do you think our relationship's a lie? What are you going to do? Put me in an impossible situation that I can't get out of? And in that time and place, we don't get to know what Sarah's reply is. Because it wasn't recorded, it was kind of a paternal history point in history, and so Sarai just has to do this. And I imagine it changed their relationship. Abraham saying, I love you, Sarai, but not enough to be honest. And see, when we're in the sifting process and we have moments like this, when Sarai and Abram have moments like this, it gives us a still shot a picture of where they're at. 
kind of like the gravel sifting. When I poured out and when I measured each of those, it gave me a still shot of one part of that road. And maybe for better or for worse, you've been in places in your life where you've gotten the still shot that you didn't like, where you didn't trust, or where you added a but. And the great part is that God protected and provided for Sarai and Abram even when they were saying, yes, God, but. And that's important. It's also important to know that that Abram and Sarai had already gotten the yes from God. Look in chapter 15. Abram's in the land, and God takes him out, calls him out, and he goes out of his tent, and God says, look up at the sky, look at the stars, see if you can count them. That's how many descendants you're going to have, as many as the stars in the sky. And it says that Abram believed God, and God counted him righteous. God counted him right with God because of his faith, because he trusted God's statement. In Genesis 17, it tells us that too. It says that, that God spoke to him again and said, you know what? Because he was doubting again. He bowed down to God and he said, I just don't understand. I just don't believe it. Are you really going to bring children through me? I'm so old. And he says, no, look, here's the deal. As for me, this is my covenant my sacred agreement with you. You will be the father of many nations. In fact, I'm changing your name. You're no longer going to be Abram. You're going to be Abraham. You're going to be the father of many nations. Kings will come from you. And then in verse 15, he goes down and he says to his wife, Sarai, he says about her, as for Sarai, your wife, you will no longer call her Sarai. She will be Sarah. And I will bless her. And I will surely give you a son through her. I will bless her so she will be the mother of many nations. In fact, kings of people will come through her. They have those promises, but they didn't come to fruition yet. But they were waiting and waiting and waiting, and they were living in tents for 10 years. I'm not sure how many of you like to camp. My wife has certain requirements now when we camp, namely an air-conditioned pop-up camper <laughs> and not me cooking. Ten years of tents. Ten years of living in a land that's not really yours, that God says it's going to be yours. Ten years of not having kids. Ten years of, I bet, trying to have children, but nothing. None. If they had EPT tests, they would always come back without the plus sign. They had servants. I imagine those servants had children. And they watched those children celebrate birthdays. And they watched those kids grow up. And they waited. And they waited. And if you've ever waited for kids, then you can totally understand where Abraham and Sarah were. I bet these moms, like watch their kids learn how to ride camels and go on creative memory scrapbooking weekends if they had them. And, and Sarai got to sit at home and wait. Do you imagine what was going on in her heart? But see, I think that part of the process of sifting is in the waiting. I think God uses the waiting all the time in the sifting process. And maybe you're waiting for a job. 
like you're doing something, but it's not really what you want, or you want a job, and it's not there, and you're waiting and waiting. Or maybe you're waiting for the right person to come into your life. You really want to be married, and, and they, it's just not time. Or you're waiting for a child. Or you're waiting to get out of your parents' house, or you're waiting to go to school, or you're waiting to get back into your parents' house, and you're waiting until life settles down, and then you'll do the things that are really important. And you're waiting. And in your waiting. And in your waiting, I think the question is, do you add the but? Because that's what Abraham and Sarah did in a huge way. Genesis 16. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children, so go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai's wife took the Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to him as her husband to be his wife, and he slept with her, and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for this. You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave girl in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now, I added a little emphasis but what would you think that conversation would have been like? It would have been nice to be a fly on their tent. What did he say? Uh, yes, I love you, but okay. I'll, I'll, I'll sleep with your slave, sure. Yes, but was huge. And in that Abram didn't just dishonor his wife, which he did. But Abram tried to bring about the promises of God through his own efforts. And when we say, yes, God, but, we either doubt or we bring about the efforts and the promises of God through our own strength. And we're not trusting him. This idea of the yes, but came from Walter Brueggemann, uh, an Old Testament scholar. Thanks, Leah. And, And he connects not only this story, but he connects Abraham to Romans 4. And, and this is just huge. Like, this is the main point, I think. Um, Paul, the writer of Romans, is trying to get the Jews and the Gentiles to understand how Abram could be the father of many nations. Because they don't get it. Because the Jews say, nope, he's only ours. And yet the promise said, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And so he's trying to bring these together. And he says this in verse 16 of Romans 4. He says, therefore the promise comes by faith. So that by grace, it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only those who are under the law, but also those who just have the faith of Abraham, because Abraham didn't have the law. Abraham is the father of us all. 
this is what the scripture means when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened, this is the money verse. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. See this, friends, I think this is the process of sifting. This is how much God loves us, that he wants to shake us and pour us and sift us and measure us and shake us and pour us and sift us and measure us to get the butt out of us. To believe that God is a God who brings dead from life who brings dead out of nothing, who creates new out of nothing, who brings life out of dead things. That's the sifting that happens in Abraham and Sarah's relationship. And I think that's the sifting that happens for us. Abram needed to learn that Abraham's sifting was Sarah's sifting. And Sarah's sifting was Abraham's sifting. And if you're married, this is big. Like someone just doesn't go through something alone. Even if they have two different stories when they come out of it, it always affects the other. And when they don't get it, when they don't realize it, huge pain, huge pain for Abraham and Sarah. And God wants to sift the butt right out of us so that we can just say, yes, God. And Carrie, I'm so excited, Carrie Harpel is going to share her story of how God did some sifting in their family. So Carrie, why don't you come on up? It's on. It is on? Is it on? Okay. I'd like to read something first. It's my favorite devotional. Um, it says, expect to encounter adversity in your life, remembering that you live in a deeply fallen world. Stop trying to find a way that circumvents difficulties. The main problem with an easy life is that it masks your need for me. When you became a Christian, I infused my very life into you, empowering you to live on a supernatural plane by depending on me. Anticipate coming face-to-face with impossibilities, situations totally beyond your control. This awareness of your inadequacy is not something you should try to evade. It is precisely where I want you the best place to encounter me in my glory and power. When you see armies of problems marching toward you, cry out to me. Allow me to fight for you and watch me working on your behalf as you rest in the shadow of my mighty presence. Um, That kind of describes a little portion of my testimony is back in 1999 um, with Y2K in December. And um, I was married to Ken for about 12 years by then. My college sweetheart, I had two kids, seven and four. We kind of thought we had it all going on. Two kids, had just built a new house. Um, I got to be a mom at home, and uh, Ken had a job that was going really well. He loved it. And um, at Christmas, we went home to Green Bay and uh, felt kind of weird. Wasn't feeling all the natural PMS symptoms that I normally do, and uh, we eagerly um, offered to go get nutmeg for my father-in-law at a store, and we bought an EPT test. And on Christmas morning, um, I woke up even before my seven and four-year-old and took the test and found out we were pregnant. It was a surprise. And uh, it was a really super wonderful surprise, but it was also a shock because we had not planned that. 
It wasn't something that was in our little plan. Um, but everybody was happy. We really couldn't keep it a secret. And we told our kids right away. And um, we told our parents. And then um, on the way home um, from Christmas, Ken had this really bad headache. And we maybe thought it was the snow that was kind of flying in your face. It was a four or five hour drive um, from Green Bay to back here in Minnesota. Um, and we thought maybe it was the snow. He kind of didn't feel very good. He usually didn't really complain about headaches. He didn't have issues. And we thought, well, maybe it's that or maybe it's the snowblower. It's old, a lot of gassy fumes. Um, but it kept going on. And by Wednesday, that was a Sunday, I had to go look back on the calendar, what, in December 1991. <laughs> and you have to remember, too, it was Y2K. So everybody was thinking, it's the end of the world. Do you have a generator? Are you putting water in your basement or packing food? And um, that really wasn't something that I remember. Did you remember reflecting? I mean, we really weren't planning on that. We kind of were coasting. It was kind of easy for us at that point in our life. And... Um, but we had this big bad headache. He woke up on Wednesday after um, Christmas, and um, he like was in a fetal position. It was like horrible pain. I called one of three wonderful friends who actually took care of my kids for the next three days, and um, we went to our doctor's office. He sat there in the office all day um, in a lot of pain, and they thought it was a sinus infection, and they sent us home. And then when we woke up the next morning, he thought he was having a stroke where his eye was turning in, it was closing, and um, we went to the emergency room. He had an MRI done, and um, the ER doctor told us that he had a brain tumor. And uh, it was super huge. <laughs> um, it, we didn't know at the time whether it was malignant or not. He just said brain tumor, it was bleeding, we had to go to the emergency, or we had to go with an ambulance down to Abbott Northwestern Hospital and um, had a neurosurgeon as our admitting doctor. And uh, I don't know, I didn't even know a neurosurgeon. So um, he was admitted and uh, super scary, called my parents, um, kind of felt like a little cartoon being slammed against the wall because it was just, I was 36 and I had never thought something like that would um, come into my life. Um, within two hours, though, um, I was surrounded by friends. My parents and my in-laws were on their way. Um, I had a room full of ladies praying for me at the hospital, and it was um, the super awesome. I guess when Rob asked me to talk about Ken and um, his tumor, I didn't really know how it fit in, but um, we also were pregnant, remember, and the doctor could not figure out how we got pregnant because what ended up being a tumor was a pituitary tumor. And um, it wasn't malignant. It was a weird shape, but it was causing all of his hormones to be out of whack, and then it was big enough to cause pain. And we, um, it was a miracle that we were pregnant because his testosterone was so low that it was kind of unexplainable to them. Um, but because it was Y2K, we also had to wait and we didn't have surgery until five days later. Or he didn't. <laughs> we didn't. Um, so it was just that waiting game. And it was one of those really tense, sifting moments of, I didn't really have anybody else to look at. And I think I had been living up to that point of, um, I was doing the butt, but it was because my life was easy. And I was 
um, not will, I think you have to be willing to allow difficulty, but God just kind of put this on us to help us trust him even more. Um, so that's kind of what I learned. It was, we ended up going, he went through surgery. It was beautiful. They got everything out. He had to have his pituitary pretty much removed, and so he's on meds, had to wear a sexy eye patch. He looked like a pirate for about 10 months. Um, but <laughs> he did. Um, and it was kind of a, a topsy-turvy year, but we had Ian at the end of that beautiful time where it was that life that came out of that. And um, it totally changed my relationships with some of my family. I had, um, I was the oldest of three, and Ian kind of put us right in the mix of all the cousins, and so it totally enriched our relationship with my brothers and their wives and my family. Um, it also showed me um, how God really wants us to not live this on our own. He wants us to have community um, with friends that we are just lavished with. So I think that's it. It was, it was good and bad. <laughs> and blessed. Thanks. Thanks, Carrie. It's all right. Carrie, when we were talking uh, on the phone, you had mentioned how, and you kind of alluded to it just now, how, how it was pretty easy to, to say, yep, I believe in God. God's there for me. I have a good life. Believe in God. Yep, he's there. And in that moment, you came face to face with the chance that that was this a God who is going to bring life from possible death, who is going to bring new things from nothing. And those are the moments that God looks for. Those are the moments God waits for because God doesn't want to be controlled and managed. And that's the kind of world we live in, isn't it? We live in this yes, but world where everything's measured, controlled, where we'd like to predict it or explain it. And God is like saying, no, that's not how I work. If you can figure me out in 30 minutes, then I'm not God. And that's the kind of faith that he's looking for, this kind of faith that, that happened when Carrie was at that moment where I'm like, I could lose my husband. I don't know how I got pregnant. That's a big faith. That's where Abraham and Sarah were when they're like, oh my gosh, God, we pulled and tried, and in our own efforts, we tried to bring a kid on our own, and you're the one who's going to bring it from dead places to newness. That's the kind of faith that he wants. This isn't just a story about two old people who have a child. This is a story about a God who brings dead things back to life, who brings new from nothing. This is about a God who keeps his promises against all odds. Nobody would say that a 100-year-old and a 90-year-old should have a kid. No one would say that. In fact, people now say, oh, the Bible, just it's just a story. It didn't make sense. If we just look at it for the faith fact that it's trying to proclaim, that this is a God who keeps his promises against all odds. This is a God who comes to us in the flesh, in a person, as Jesus, and says, like, hey, do you want a world of peace? And what would we say? Oh, yes, we'd love a world of peace, but it won't happen. Jesus says, I'm the prince of peace. And when we look at the world and we think, 
Like, can you imagine a world where the blind see and we say, yes, but that's because we've got great technology and modern medicine. And Jesus says, no, I'm the God of vision. And when we look at the world and we look at the places where, where we need food and we have enough and it's just a distribution problem and we say, yes, but God says, I fed the 5,000. Then it's not too hard if we can say yes to those things. And I don't think it's too hard to say that there's a God who, who says, can you imagine where lost people are welcomed home? Can you imagine where the marginalized in society get equal status? Can you imagine where children actually have innocence for like more than two years? Can you imagine a world where, where Jesus could be king? Because Jesus never said, yes, God, but. He said, not my will, but yours. He said, I will follow you. I will obey you. I will submit my life to you. And, and, and that's the God that he's trying to show. That's the process of sifting that is trying to happen here. This God who brings the dead back to life, who creates new things from nothing. That's what Abraham needed to realize, was this God could do that. That's what Carrie needed to realize, that this God could bring death, from, that could bring life from death, who could bring newness from nothing. I needed to realize that. I'm still realizing that, that God doesn't want to be controlled or predicted that God is saying, no, 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 I can do anything. $10,000, is that just a trust thing? Is my faith and my family and my marriage, is that, is that really fully yours, God, where I say it's all yours and you're the God who brings newness out of nothing? That's the process of sifting. So there is no more but. So as the band comes up to, to give us time to process and pray, what's dead in your life right now? What is something that you're saying, yes, God, but, that really wouldn't happen? Is it hope? Do you, do you have dead hope? Where... Were you really in your heart of hearts that you probably wouldn't say because it's a church, you don't want to say this stuff like that, but we're a church that you can be honest at, where you go, I really don't have a lot of hope. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty hopeless right now. God is saying, in those moments, come near to me because I'm the God of hope. And I will sift the butt right out. Is it is it that? Is it faith? Is faith dead to you right now? Are you in a place where, where you think that maybe, maybe God is with you, but maybe he's not? Maybe there's been so many things that have happened to crush and wreck your faith that all you feel is doubt. And if that feels dead to you, then would you see a God who comes right beside you in the midst of that doubt, who's not shocked by it, who's not alarmed by it, who's not judging you for it, who's right in the midst of it, right there, patiently waiting for the butts to leave. Maybe it's not hope, maybe it's not faith, but not to be cliche, but maybe it's love. Maybe you have a dead friendship and you're just distraught over it because this person was so close to you and something happened and you're not quite sure how to respond. 
This is a God who's a friend to the friendless. This is a God who brings new from nothing. This is a God who brings life from death. This is a God who can revive friendships. If you're in a place where you just have a really unhealthy relationship with your parents, I don't care how old you are, can you imagine God stepping into that where there's only been damage and where there's only been pain? And God says yes to that, no buts. Yes, I will restore that. Maybe the deadness and the love is in your marriage. And you just think there's no way. It's taken so long. We've gone down this hill. It's the same song, the same story. There's no way. Yes, God, I love you, but our marriage will never be vibrant. It will never be a place that I can truly look across the table and say, I love this person. And God says, no, 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 buts. Yes. I'm the God who restores all love. I'm the God who looks across the table at someone and says, I love you exactly how you are, for who you are, in all ways. There's no buts. And I will bring you to this place where you are beautiful and you have a boldness that is unimaginable. Where is it dead for you? Where are you adding the but? Because that's what this sifting process is about, getting rid of that. Would you take some time? I don't want to even try to guess where your spot is. I just know this is where God took me in the text, and, and he's working on me through his spirit even this week, and maybe he's working on you right now. So, Ask God through his spirit to speak to you right now about what he might say to you about getting the butt out. May you, this week, believe in a God who can't be managed or measured or predicted or controlled. May you believe in a God who you can say yes to, even if that means that he is going to be a God who brings life from death and new things from nothing. That is the kind of faith that God wants us to have and that is the kind of faith that will make the world be transformed through Jesus and he calls us to be a part of it. If you haven't met somebody new, um, do that. If you need to join someone for prayer, you can meet back there. Um, Have a great Sunday.